Hello, magical beings. Welcome back or welcome to the Find Your Awesome podcast. I am so excited you're here. If this is your first time here, welcome. Thank you so much. I really hope you enjoy these conversations. I hope you share them with your friends and I hope you stick around for a while. And if you are back for more, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, for sharing, for opening your hearts and minds to these conversations. Thank you. I don't know another word in the English language that can really express how I feel. So all I'm going to say right now is thank you. I am Kelsey Abbott. I am your host. I'm a confidence coach and instigator of joy, and I help spiritual adventurers remember who they are and why they're here so they can up-level with ease. I'm currently accepting a few new one-on-one clients. If that intrigues you, no, no, no. If that idea sets your soul on fire, please reach out to me through my website, kelseyabbott.com. You can click on the connect tab and shoot me a message through there and we will connect because connection is like my favorite thing in the world. And now on to this week's episode with Patty Lennon. She is a business coach but we don't talk about business until the end of this episode. And we dive into some super helpful tips around all things business, but especially for women, we talk about valuing ourselves. We talk about sales objections. Like we actually get into some nitty gritty stuff that is super helpful. And through the beginning of the conversation, you will see how it's super helpful because Patty is not a I'm going to tell you what to do kind of business coach. Patty is a soul business coach. We start out this episode talking about uh, intuition and connection and grieving, but really not in a, this is not a depressing conversation at all. And then we move into talking about this experience that Patty had where she was invited to remember that we have a choice. We can either believe in the sky or we can believe in the ground. And if we want to fly, we just need to believe in the sky more than we believe in the ground. You're going to hear my mind get blown by that very concept in the conversation. And I hope I didn't spoil it too much for you right now. Patty is, as I said, a business coach. And she inspires audiences to lead and sell with passion and purpose. She's an expert business coach that believes our businesses are not only a way to make money and contribute to our fellow humans, but also a conduit for our soul's evolution. She's also the host of a weekly podcast called Wealth and Purpose. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Enjoyed being there for it as much as I enjoyed creating it with Patty. My friends... It's up to you. Go forth and be awesome. Patty, we were just talking about, well, you were sharing all these wonderful things, wonderful, more like beautiful things that are happening that you're observing in your life right now. And it feels like you're really truly seeing the fullness I don't want to use the word beauty again, but the fullness that is this life journey for humans. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. Yeah. I will just, I want to honor you for 
that because I think it's incredible. And I think it's something that many of us don't. We're always kicking and screaming against what happens against the transitions in life. So. Yeah. You know, um, that's, that's such a good observation because just as you said it, what I realized I have access to is, um, so my context, my dad just died two months ago and I'm still in a deep, the deep grief where it's still very alive. And normally we get told, you know, that everything's a teacher for us, you know, that the good and the bad serves us and exactly, you know, it's all brought to us to help. But to actually access it in the moment without hindsight is not something we usually get access to. And somehow I do have it right now. Somehow I can be experiencing a deep level of grief and yet be experiencing life at a heightened state and in enjoying even the difficulty. But that's, I don't even know what the noun is I want to use there, but I feel like there's magic in once we learn that we can hold both. Yeah. And hold, there's, we can be in joy and grief at the same time. You know what I think it is, is it's freedom mm. because it's, we're all always looking for freedom. You know, what I do for my, for my work, you know, for my business is I'm a business coach and, and I specialize in marketing and sales and always with marketing, it's about getting to what does the person really want? Like, what do they really want? And ultimately you can't say freedom. Everyone wants freedom. You have to figure out how do they express that freedom? Like I want more money because then more money will get me more experiences or free me from my fear or whatever it is. But ultimately we want to live in a sense of freedom. And if you can't experience the fear of pain, like the deep pain, I'm not talking about physical pain. Cause seriously, if you come at me with a knife right now, I'm going to feel like super scared. But if you, if the worst emotions you could encounter don't, don't uh, control you, you have real, real freedom. Hmm. So, well, I guess what is your definition of freedom? Well, I think I feel about, I mean, freedom has a lot of things that I could say about it. You know what I mean? Like if you put me in another situation, like I was in two weeks ago where my son was failing a class that he's brilliant in and he potentially was not going to leave grammar school if he didn't figure that shit out. Um, I didn't feel very free, you know? So obviously it's not a, I'm not talking global, but I guess freedom is the experience of In the, in the context I'm talking about it, is that whatever the next moment holds, I will be whole in that moment. And so there's zero resistance. I love that definition. I don't know what to say in response to that. That's just so beautiful. So whatever the next moment holds, I will be whole in that moment. Mm -hmm. How does that feel in your body? Um, I mean, this isn't a feel, but it feels relaxed. I feel like the most relaxed in my life that I've probably ever been right now in this stage in my life. And you just lost your father. Yeah. And you've got a, a kid 
start about to start high school. Mm-hmm. You've, you've got construction going on at your house. Yeah. Yeah. Our, yeah. Our Externally. Sinking. Yeah. Pool. Our pool was sinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So that, those are all stressors. Those are things that people will be like, Oh my God, I can't relax. I've got this, this, and this, and this. Yeah. I don't have, I don't feel stressed right now. And, and let me just, let me just say, in case you're hoping, like I have some like deep wisdom about how to get here. I don't. And I regularly stress about stupid shit. So I don't, I can't even claim that I have avoided that because I, I just was the, um, I, I chaired the event at our kid's school that is their moving up ceremony. And they just contacted me that the janitors never took down the 2023 that's hanging from the ceiling. And before this podcast, I was stressing about what am I going to do? How am I going to get these things off the ceiling? Right? So it's not that I'm absent of like minor stress, but yeah, the moving forward in life, there is nothing right now that could present itself that would you know, create resistance. Yeah. It sounds like uh, this is the image that came to me. It's horrible. I'm sorry. I'm going with this, but it sounds like you'd be calm as a truck is barreling towards you. Yeah. But a mosquito is swarming around your head and like, Oh, that's annoying. Yep. Absolutely. I guess, you know what I think it is, is that with the death of my father, my fear of death is completely gone. Mm. I think that's really what's absent for me at this point. That, and what does it feel like not to have a fear of death anymore? Um, it feels like the risk-reward relationship of everything in life just shifted. Wow. And so it's all more fun. It's all more of a game than it was a few months ago. It kind of sounds like your dad gave you in passing, he gave you the gift of joy. Yeah. Wow. And to give it context, because for anyone listening, that's going through grief, um, because we were already talking about this before we got on, my mother died seven years ago. And so I went through a very different experience of grieving when she died. And at the time I, I did have intuitive gifts, but they got a lot stronger over the year after she died. So slowly I was able to talk to her and, and, and trust that what I was hearing from her was, was truth. And, um, So when my father died, I could immediately talk to him and immediately trust. And so the moment where, you know, when you're little, there's a moment where you let go of your parents' hands. If you had a healthy relationship or somewhat healthy relationship with your parents, you're in a place and you, your hands come apart and you don't, you can't find them for a moment. Right. Mm -hmm. But then they grab your hand and all of a sudden you're safe again. And when my mom died, it was that. Took like a year to get her hand back. 
But when my dad died, I never let go of his hand. And so the illusion that there's an ending or that we're separate or even that we're ever alone kind of disintegrated. And maybe that's, maybe that's what it is, you know? So beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you for asking. I don't even know what I asked. Me neither. <laughs> Whatever it was, it got me to say that. So that was good. That was brilliant. What kind of things has your dad said to you after he passed? Um, well, the fun, the, the, the kind of the funniest fun thing he said was, so for the first week that he came, he wouldn't speak. And, um, he, and, and it was almost like he couldn't orient himself enough to speak, but my mom would come in and she'd put her arm around him and then she'd be like, we've got him Patty. And then she'd turn around and walk him out almost like a really like overtired child. Mm. But the first thing he said was, Oh, it's not the way I thought it would be. We were, um, he raised us Catholic, like my, both my parents were strict Catholics not strict in the sense of beating or anything silly like that, but um, they followed the rules and he really, his life was guided by the rules and he just assumed that it was going to be him plus God in like a judgment situation. And he was a very good man and he was very careful about following the rules. So he wasn't, I don't think he thought he was going to like get in big trouble, but I'm sure he thought all those little sins he committed along the way were going to be there on this big long list. And all that was there was like all of these people that he helped. And so where he thought that his first moments on the other side were going to be about what he did wrong. And I think we, so many of us live that way, you know, how to avoid doing the wrong thing. All it was was a celebration of what he did right. And that was a big shock to him. But he was so funny about it, you know? He would just be like, God wasn't pissed, you know? <laughs> they were all just happy to see me. And then the next thing he, he shared was, um, Patty, kindness is it. Like you have no idea how important it is because the kindness is what you feel when you come back. Oh, what does that mean? Meaning every kindness he had given out, that person that received it was waiting to return it to him. Wow. He sounds like a very wise being. Yeah. And he was, you know, he was a very humble man. He had his flaws, but he was a very humble man. And it was one of my greatest joys was for him to tell me, and I could see it, what he experienced when he crossed over. Because I don't think he knew what a difference he made. So for him to finally 
see the impact. Yeah. The, the love, the joy, the comfort that he brought others. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas when my mom was crossing, you know, her death was slow and those people started coming before she crossed over and she saw all that, you know, and so she was, you know, in human form, she was able to kind of like integrate that experience and her, when she crossed to the other side, her um, experience was completely different. It was a much smaller group. And that was my mom. My dad was an extrovert. My mom was an introvert. And for her, it was just a very tight circle of the people she missed the most. Because she had had seven brothers and sisters and all of them, except for one, had died before she did. And so it was all of them just integrating her into the other side of the veil. And did you know that when she was alive? Did she talk about that? What she saw? Yeah. Yeah, actually, my, um, my intuition was pretty heightened during that time. And I, so I was actually the one that started introducing her to who she was seeing. It actually started long before we knew she was going to die. When she was getting cancer treatments, um, one particular being would just keep showing up and I didn't recognize her. And I thought maybe it was my grandmother when she was younger. So I described her to my mom and she was the sister that I was actually named after that I was young. Um, so I didn't see pictures. I only saw one black and white of her and it was this particular dress she was wearing. My mom knew exactly what dress it was. And, um, so she knew who it was. And this, she would show up. My mom had broken her hip right before she started chemo and she had to go through chemo with a broken hip because of the severity of the cancer. So she was in a lot of pain a lot of times. And every time the pain would get really big and I could see it in her body, this being would come and lay her hands on my mom and my mom would relax as soon as she was there. And, and this happened for about a week before I even told my mom about it. And um, that sister died of, I don't remember what the disease was, but it was something like polio, like something that created a lot of pain in the body. So she, you know, like she uh, went through that in the human form herself. I wonder then, is that why she was able to ease your mom's pain? I think so. Yeah. I need a tissue, man, but <laughs> close by. Well, just sorry. You're going to have to witness me like sniffling. Oh, it's quite all right. You can snot it out on this podcast. <laughs> all you need to do. <laughs> it's a safe, safe, safe snot space. Wow, that was hard to say. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where do we want to go next? I was just going to say, where do you go from there? Like, you know? I'm so before we started recording, you mentioned that you broke your back and that was a pretty impactful event. Can you share about that, please? Yeah. So, um, three years ago I was, um, I was at a yoga class and it was actually a really, a much more, the, the positions we had, we did in that class were unusually difficult. I'd never even seen them or heard of them. And I was at a pretty, I was at a pretty advanced level in yoga. I wasn't a, like, I didn't, I'm not a yoga instructor, but I can pretty much do whatever I get guided to do. And I, I, I did know I had pushed myself, you know, egoically. I pushed myself to do a, a position that my body was asking for something gentler, but I left the class. I was fine. And, um, I got in my minivan and I drove home and 
when I went to get out of the van, a, um, a, a lightning hot, uh, pain shot up my back. And I mean, it took, it was the most horrific pain I've ever experienced. And I was in labor for three days, induced labor. So Pitocin induced labor without an epidural, without anything for, uh, 48 of those hours. And I will tell you, I would go back and do another 48 hours then have to relive that one moment again. That's how bad it was. So, wow. um, so I started doing, you know, my practices. I was like, so I pulled, I just had started to put my foot out the door. That was what caused the pain. And I pulled it back in and I just start doing breathing to calm my body down calm my nervous system down. And I sent like light and love to like where the pain was and eventually I was able to like slither out of the van up the stairs and just laid inside the door. And, and I don't know how many hours passed, but eventually my husband got home and was, we got into bed and I had, you know, with the help of WebMD self-diagnosed that I had a like bulging disc. And, um, so it was like a Friday so I just stayed in bed the whole weekend. And by Sunday, I was basically okay. And I mean, I could walk again. And I made a doctor's appointment. He gave, you know, he did the test. By that point, I was able to, to move, but with pain. And he diagnosed it just like I had a bulging disc and go for physical therapy. But he said, before you do, you have to go see the pain doctor that runs the physical therapy lab. He sent me for an x-ray. He again assessed it the same way. While I was waiting for that to come through, I went to my shaman, which I do both Western and Eastern modalities, you know, always with my body. And she was working on my body. And typically when I see her, it's like I, the session starts and like, I feel like it's 30 seconds later and she's like, okay, we're done. And it's an hour and a half later. Yeah. But in this one, I was very aware and like I had fingers. I could feel multiple sets of fingers going up and down my spine, like lots of activity from beings that were not her. And so at the end of the session, she told me, you know, she doesn't normally tell me about past life shit. Like she doesn't, she doesn't think it's important. And also it can be very confusing, but she goes, Patty, I think, you know, they showed me the ancient spirit she was working with pulled a, a sword out of your spine. And she said, I think this injury is past life related. And so just be, you know, just be aware of that. And then I walked out of her office and turned my phone back on and it was the doctor saying your spine's fractured. Um, and so I went to go see him. And so basically this fracture actually happens to girls when they're about eight years old. And typically it happens to gymnasts from doing backbends over and over again. But I wasn't a gymnast. You got, you and I were talking about this earlier. I was this chubby, uncoordinated kid. And they said uh, in the rare case where that's not the case, where a gym, it doesn't happen to a gymnast and it goes unseen, it just becomes this like ticking time bomb where eventually in your adult life, you're going to have the acute episode that didn't, you didn't experience as a child, the pain. And that's what I experienced. And um, the reason it's so hard for me is that with most things in my life, like I was able to go through labor with my son, even I was a pretty unconscious person back then, but I've always been able to breathe through things and like use the basic tools of like talking to your body and, and 
engaging it. And for like a couple of weeks, my, my spine wouldn't say anything. I would say, what do you need from me? What do you want? And it would give me nothing. And I was, I had started um, steroids at that point just to reduce the swelling and was doing physical therapy but obviously that's not going to heal anything. And the doctor had concluded, you're not going to need surgery. Like it's, it's minor enough that with the right core strength and st stabilizing kind of exercise, you'll be fine. But, um, my spine would give me nothing. I'd be like, what do you need to tell me? What do I need to know? And there was nothing. And then finally, um, one day I changed the question to, you know, what happened when I was eight that caused this fracture. And, um, immediately it was like this fog was in front of me that I didn't even see, like in my mind's eye and it cleared. And I saw myself at the top of a, of a stairway, like at our house. And it was like this big sweeping stairway and I jumped and I flew. And at the same moment, I got the message, you stopped flying. And all of this like memory comes back. And just for those of you listening, if you don't buy into this, it's okay. Cause I can give you the psychology of what might be going on in my brain. It still makes it relevant to you if you don't believe any of the shit. And so I would fly to this town and I would teach people how to fly. And the process was always the same. You take three confident steps, jump, and you don't have to jump super high. Just once you're off the ground, you have to believe more in the sky than you do in the ground. And that was the process. And I would do it over and over and over again. And I could remember feeling like these stupid adults, like these stupid grownups, they can't get it. Like if they get off the ground and then they start to fly a little bit, but then they're like, look, there's the ground. And then they fall. And at the same time, oh my God, I'm like so teary and gross. I'm glad the rest of you don't like have to look at my face. Um, at that time when I was eight, my dad's business partner embezzled all his money. And I don't remember that being present for me as a kid. We didn't lose our house or anything like that, but I'm guessing there was a lot of like tension in the house. And so, you know, when I have since taught this flying lessons, this metaphor or this real thing, you know, ultimately we all have this ask of us, you know, you, you take the leap of faith, but the leap of faith isn't enough. You have to actually believe in your ability to do something you have yet to have achieved. And if you, and you know, and for me, that's, you believe in the divinity of your soul because that's the unstoppable part of you. But even if your words are different and you just see it as your, your next level self or whatever, you have to believe in that version of you that has yet to exist more than you believe in the version that does. And, and from the divinity part, you have to believe more in the divine, you know, than you do in the fear that's on this planet and the fear that's on this planet is the ground. But I imagine when my dad had all his money stolen and there was money fear, like so present that the little human of me started to believe more in the ground. So metaphysically, that's what happened. Physically, now that both parents are on the other side of the veil, I did ask and they said I got pulled off of a fence. But at the time I had a lot of injuries in the front of my body and they didn't understand that there, that something had happened to my spine. So they didn't, they didn't know to check it out. But so the, 
the the real story is a lot less interesting than the metaphysical one. Yeah. How did you know it happened when you were eight? Just because the doctor said it typically happens then? Um, between the ages of seven and eight, your female spines harden. So that's at, so while it's hardening, if you're doing back bends or you twist a lot, or in my case, you get a particular, um, difficult, like fall, that's the, the type of the, the fracture, that's how it happens. So it can only happen during that period of time where the spine is going from soft to hard. This is fascinating. This, okay. So let me share why this is resonating so strongly with me. Three years ago or something, it all started. I, I've, I've swam my whole life and I always got out of the pool with my right foot up on the pool deck, like hopped out, put my right foot up. And I went to do that and my right leg wouldn't go up. So that was weird. And then it kept happening. And then my back started hurting. And then we went off on this adventure. We sold our house and we started traveling around the country in a camper. And I remember there was one day I had much like what you're explaining. I was swimming. All of a sudden, it was like someone stuck a knife in my back. And I was in pain for three years, two and a half, three years. My swimming, all of a sudden, my, what had been my easy pace was barely, I could barely make that pace when I was trying to go strong. I hurt so badly when I was standing still. Swimming was just like, I'd kind of cry, but I'd still do it because sometimes it felt okay. And when I did a flip turn, then that was relief. And, um, oh, and I'm just looking at my past experience and what happened when I was eight is that when my dad almost started a business and then the company pulled out at the last minute, the funders pulled out at the last minute. Mm. Is that, that, I mean, just your story. I'm like, oh my goodness. Are you telling me this right now? Because this, because my experience mirrors yours. Hmm. I don't know. Thank you. And I never had x-rays. So I don't know what actually happened in there. Well, what I would tell you is from just from a practical standpoint, don't bother getting them because they did nothing but solidify my belief in the fracture. And what I told you before we start recording is I think what my body really needs is for me to believe a lot less in that. And it's in that weak point than it does in the, the strength that lives within it. Right. Because when we hear that something's fractured, it's broken. And then we feel like we are broken. Mm-hmm. And limited. Yeah. Because the funny thing is I told you, like I used to love kickboxing. We talked about this before we start recording. I used to love kickboxing and yoga. Like I did all these things that supposedly I can't do anymore because any twisting of the spine will um, <clears throat> potentially make this worse. But the reality is I'm not supposed to sit for more than an hour at a time. And I sit for three, four hours easily doing my work. So I I called myself on that like a couple of weeks ago, like Patty, really, if we're going to like, and the other thing that I should absolutely be doing is core work every single day. And yet 
I managed to avoid that. So if we're really going by like the rules of the game, I've broken all the, the lazy ones. So I'm pretty sure the ones that take a little bit of effort, maybe I could break those as well. And we're so good at once we have a story, just grabbing onto it and then we yeah. look for evidence to support it. Exactly. We are just like absolute pros at that mm -hmm. after we stop flying. Yes. Yes. Once we start believing in that ground. I'm st that's just so good. That is the best thing I've heard today. Maybe, Yay. maybe for months. I just love that so much. I can't wait to listen to this podcast again and go and listen to that part again. Well, I'm glad. So we've been talking about <laughs> spirituality. We've been talking about everything that doesn't have to do with business. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious. So you're a business coach, huh? Yes. I was just going to say, you said we have been talking about everything that doesn't have to do with business. And I was going to say, or have we? Yeah. Oh, yes. Enlighten me, please. Yeah. Well, um, you know, probably fundamentally, the thing that most people struggle with in business is, quote unquote, not having enough sales. You know, like it, it doesn't matter how successful someone is, it, if I'm getting a beginner level client who's really just doesn't even make enough money to feel like they have a quote unquote real business, they're struggling with sales. I've got someone that's like a couple hundred thousand dollars and they've hit a plateau the things that are going to solve their problem are not the same as the, you know, that first client, but it's because they don't have enough sales. Right. And typically at that couple hundred thousand dollars, the issue is they're not willing to hand off more of their tasks. You know, they're not willing to hire to someone else to do some stuff. And then to cross over to the seven figure mark, it's just a scaling issue again. And it's, what do I want more sales? Like the definition of most people use to define business growth is increase in sales, you know, or stability of sales with increase and with decrease in time spent in the business, which is really just more money per hour. So, you know, everyone thinks they've got a sales problem and what they really have is a receiving problem. And the receiving happens at the spiritual level. You know, um, I give away almost all my sales training. I don't even charge for it anymore because I want people to come face to face with the fact that you can have exactly how to do a sales conversation from a top sales coach for free. Like it's there for you. You have no excuse not to take it. Now go ahead, go ahead, grab it, learn how to do a sales conversation well, and come back to me and let me know how your sales do. And they'll inch up, you know, usually by 10 or 20%. But if you want to make a market difference in your sales, you have to change your relationship to receiving, which is all your relationship to worthiness and efforting and believing in the ground. Yeah. Um, Jennifer Aruzio, who was on the podcast probably about a year ago, she told me once, about receiving she was like you don't have to receive like once you've got enough to give that's not when you need to give let yourself receive all the way so your bucket is overflowing and then you can give yeah yeah we tend to think oh, okay 
I like basically I caught my breath. Now I can go back to give, give, give. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the story? What are the stories that we tend to tell ourselves that block us from receiving? Well, there's layers of stories. So there's the story on the outside, which is, um, I don't know enough to get the thing that I want, right? Like it, it, you can take sales off the table and let's say, um, it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a significant other. And you're like, I've done everything I know. So clearly I'm missing something. And so I'm going to go out there and either try and figure it out or I'm going to give up or I'm going to feel sorry for myself. And that's a legitimate block. You know, whether it's, I don't know how to have a sales conversation. I don't know how to do my marketing to create enough leads. Um, because your brain believes that. And because your brain believes that it, your brain will block money from coming in because it has an equation that you need to be X, Y, and Z to make X, Y, and Z. And so it will hold that money back. But once you kind of get rid of the, of the brain block of it, the stories are usually, um, who am I to make this money? Um, my, you know, the person I'm helping can't afford it. Um, I'm not enough. I don't deserve it. Someone else could use it more than I can. And to a lesser extent, kind of a version of that is someone's already done it, you know, like kind of imposter syndrome, like kind of, I'm not putting anything new out there, so I don't deserve to make good money at it. Now, I mostly work with service-based people. So obviously, if you've invented something and it's brand new, you're not going to have that story. Well, let's go back to the one that the person I'm serving can't afford it because that one's sneaky because it sounds like it has nothing to do with you. It's about them. It does. has just them. Right. But so what, what No, of course not. <laughs> of course not. Because here's, and here's what I tell people when they have that story, that story is an easy one to unloosen because it's not true, completely untrue. Your brain made it up so you don't have to look at the one that is either I'm unworthy, I'm not enough, I'm whatever, a selfish pig, whatever you were taught as a kid. I mean, really, it's so simple. If you're struggling with sales, just go back to your childhood and figure out the shitty message you were fed. And by shitty, I mean, my life was pretty good. I had good parents. The message I was fed was, you're such a good person, Patty, keep doing it keep over giving. You're doing a good thing. We love you more because you're better than other people. You know, better meaning I gave more than other people. I took care of other people. So your shitty message doesn't have to be an abusive drunk parent. You know, it could be something that did not tell you that wanting deeply having deep desires and asking for them to be fulfilled is if you weren't told that that's a good thing, you were fed a shitty message. Mm, yes. My, one of my stories, my like big money block that I just uncovered like six months ago was I remember being like babysitting and at the end of the night, the, so the wife would say to the husband, oh, do you have money to pay Kelsey? And it would be like, oh yeah, I can find some. And it was like a pain in the butt for them to pay me. Yeah. So that blocked some stuff. Yeah. Cancel for people to pay me. 
Yeah. Or you're, yeah, you're inconveniencing them. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, going back to your, um, we can talk about that too, because that's a fun one. Um, just because you asked, like, how do you undo the, my, my clients can't afford to pay this price. What I will tell you is put a, put a number of paying clients in your mind of what would make you feel abundant in your business and give away whatever you want to give away once you hit that number. So make being caring for these, you know, poor clients that you supposedly have be the charity arm of your business. And like, I can give all my sales training away. I, next week, I don't know when this airs, so I don't want to necessarily put it out there, but next week we, um, I will be doing something that I do at least twice a year, but sometimes I pop up and do an extra one where I will take anyone who wants to join me. We'll write your marketing plan together. I do it a completely free. I used to sell it as a program. I can do all that free shit because I make the kind of money I make. Making money allows you to serve people who truly don't have money. Those people are out there, but believe me, they're not out there. They don't outweigh all the people that actually have money. And then the other thing is, you know, if someone that you love desperately needed an operation, a medicine, a whatever, could you come up with it? Yes, you could. Your ideal client could. So if you have something that meets their deepest need, they will come up with the money for it. Mm. And it's all about you. It has nothing to do with them. Yeah. No. Bring it at home. Mm. You just like reel that off too. Nice work. Thank you. It, it, you know, it's my, that's what I live, you know, and I, before we start talking, you asked me like what I'm excited about is, and my, my work is taking a more spiritual turn. This is really it. It's like, I don't even pretend to, to, I don't even pretend to believe that a marketing plan is your problem. Like I will give it to you, but I'm not even going to pretend like that's your problem. Your problem is a receiving problem. And that's the one we're going to work on if we're working together privately. Your problem is a receiving problem. Little crown chakra <laughs> activation and receive, which is, well, it tends to be more challenging for women because I think a lot of women are taught to give, give, give. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think the, 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 um, the syndrome is twofold. It's we're taught to overgive, and, and the thing that makes it so uh, difficult for women entrepreneurs, specifically around business, is we are also socialized to save, and men are socialized to invest. So it's, it's a twofold issue. Where does that come from? Um, you mean like like historically, where does that come from? Or, or how do you know like, that women are socialized to save? Oh, easy. If you um, ask a, a, a man in their 20s, like you get a group of random ass men that you pull from like all over and you ask them if it's like kind of like a, um, a badge of honor to invest in a stock or to have a tip or like to see what the stock market's doing or the Dow or even like in a like, 
a different society, maybe even gambling, you know, mm -hmm. um, you're going to get a majority of men are going to say yes. Right. And then you ask women if saving money, finding the sale, cutting the coupons, if they do it like a really badass way, they are going to be the superstars of the group more than Susie Orman is. That's so interesting. That's the same way that, you know, you compliment a woman on her dress and she says, thanks, I got it on sale. Or it has pockets. Yep. I do that shit all the time, by the way. So I'm not, it's not that you have to like, I guess where I was going to go with it is I think we all, we can tend to get into this place of like, oh, that's my problem. I'm now I'm going to, I'm going to focus on not doing and saying stupid shit like that. Don't worry about that. That's not the, that isn't the problem that you still do that. What we want to get underneath is that mental thought process that being able to limit the amount of money that goes out the door is the goal. Whereas men are socialized to maximize the amount of money that comes in the door. It's, this is fascinating. I'm just thinking of the, the energetic pull then of heterosexual couples with one trying to minimize the money that's going out the door and one trying to maximize the money that's coming in and the flow in that. When you're minimizing the amount going out, there's a little stagnation there. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, because everything's cause and effect. Now, that also then doesn't, doesn't necessarily, because then there's the layers of the way that your personality is. And so if you're more of a more, con you can have guys that are the ones that are more worried about money going out the door and women be the spenders. And that's kind of like the, actually the stereotypes yeah. of a lot of like, at least households in, in like America that like kind of get, you know, sitcoms built around them. Um, and it's, that's not the same thing. It's just in entrepreneurship as business owners, we come in with that socialization and that, uh, that completely impacts. We, you know, they did a study, U S department of commerce did a study in 2010 on why women were making so much less money in their businesses than men because they had figured out that the recovery, the long-term recovery of economy in this country is going to be built on women, small business owners that are women owned. And yet they were making so much less money. They wanted to figure out what the core issues were so they could fix them. And the core issues were that, and, and women make 20, as of 2010, I hope the numbers have moved since then, women make 25 cents on their male counterparts dollar. Wow. Which that is like a whole other topic of conversation because we sit here, at least in the U.S., in this country and complain on the 70, I think it's now 79 cents on the dollar to our male counterparts in corporate America. And yet when we control our paychecks, we're making 25 cents on the dollar. So my question, and this has always been at the bank, is you've got to own your shit. You have to own the fact that you don't ask for the raise. You have to own the fact that you don't leave the job that doesn't pay you what it should pay you, right? Like you've got to do all those things because we see once corporate fairness is removed and women have total control over their income in their own businesses, they're making 25 cents on the dollar. And the reason is um, they don't believe they're worth it. They don't invest in their businesses. And um, 
oh crap, I forgot. It's been a while since I looked at the study. I forget what the third one, it was clearly less interesting to me because I don't retain it. But the big one was they don't invest. They feel bad asking for the sale and they don't invest in their businesses at the level that men do. How do you deal with that feeling bad asking for the sale? You mean how does a person deal with yeah. that? Or like how do I coach people on that? How do you coach people on it? Um, the, the first thing, well, not the first thing that would be mean. It depends on the person's personality, but one strategy we use is, um, do 20 sales calls in 20 days because actually a lot of that messaging that you're fighting is coming from your amygdala. It's coming from your reptile brain, which is your fight or flight impulse. And it believes that by asking for money that you're going to be judged bad and thrown out of the tribe. And so your, your fear is coming from the fear of rejection. So the only way to deprogram the amygdala, well, there's a few ways to deprogram the amygdala, but you basically have to reprogram it to believe that asking for money is safe and good. And there's a really long process you can go through using different activities, experiential work, and some cognitive behavioral work, or you can just desensitize it to its bullshit and then reap the rewards of a sale and the desensitization matched with um, a positive outcome is the fastest way to reprogram the brain. It's the same way as when someone's afraid of spiders and they get, you know, um, they go through the different exposure levels of first seeing a spider and then, you know, eventually having them crawl over their body, which is just weird, but, yeah. um, this sounds much more pleasant. Yeah. 20 sales calls in 20 days. And what happens when you do it in that condensed period of time, the amygdala doesn't have the ability to keep powering up the resistance to it. And then that matched with the fact that when you do 20 sales calls in 20 days, you will have sales like everyone does. Um, you get money and money makes you feel good. And so, and it makes you feel safe. It makes you feel the thing that the amygdala wants to feel. So you pair those two things and then you start to feel differently about it. So that's, I mean, that's one of the more harder core exercises that I do. It reminds me of, I forget the name of this exercise. It was like basically rejection therapy, trying to, you seek out rejection. And there was some YouTube project. There are probably lots of people doing it now. Cause I first learned about this like 10 years ago, but mm -hmm. you seek rejection. And so you ask ridiculous things. Like you go up and ask a stranger for a hundred dollars mm -hmm. and sometimes they say yes and hand you the money. You say like, Hey, can there's someone's like walking out of a pizza place with a fresh pizza and you say, can I have that? Sometimes they give it to you. And sometimes they say, no, no. And, Fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> and so what you're with that kind of stuff, what you're doing is you're being faced with those really horrible reactions that you think you'll die if you get them. And so yeah. that does that in the case of 20 sales calls within 20 days, all you're getting is like, no, but no one's going like, what, how could, how dare you? You know, cause you're, yeah. I, I mean, ideally you're only getting into sales conversations with people who have agreed to be on the phone with you or in person with you. Um, but I think there's another piece of sales for a lot of us that grew up in the internet marketing space, like kind of like our businesses grew in that, that world where 
sales was done in this very harmful, manipulative way. So I think there's also understanding how to have a sales conversation from a loving, service-oriented perspective. So I think that's probably the real answer to your question is that's how I do it. As I show someone, you don't have to be a shithead. And, and if you do it this way and, and you do it well, you'll get to a point in a sales conversation where you may not even make an offer, but you will know at that point, whether you do or don't, that you've been of service to your ideal client. And when you know, like you fundamentally know for a fact that sales conversations are service to your ideal client, it, then your relationship to them completely changes. Yeah. I heard Russell Brandt say today, in this material world, there's nothing for you to take from it. It's just for you to give. And that doesn't mean like work for free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give. You're here to serve. Yeah, yeah. And serve fully from your heart. And as long as you allow in what comes in response to that, you'll be fine. Yeah, that's part of serving. It's because you've got to complete the circle. Right. That's why most people especially the best people, I would say, who have the issues with sales, you already, you know how to start the cycle. It's the shithead that actually has the harder time because they don't actually know how to be of service. Mm. No. And that's why you don't have a selling problem. You don't have a leads problem. You don't have a marketing problem. You have a receiving problem. I love that you just say that. So point blank, because I feel like so many people dance around that. Well, there it is. Bam. (laughs) Uh, patty is there we have talked i mean geez this conversation has blown my mind we've gone from grief to flying to to sales is there anything i haven't asked you that you want to share right now no i feel like we've we're complete okay how can people learn more about you uh, my website is pattylinen.com. I also am one of those dinosaurs that still fundamentally hangs out in Facebook. So you can find me, my facebook.com forward slash Patty A. Lennon, where I give a lot of um, this kind of content on Facebook Lives. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been so fun. It really has. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to continue the conversation, please head over to Facebook and join the group Find Your Awesome with Kelsey Abbott. It's free. And if you want more than that, go to my website, kelseyabbott.com. And there you can sign up for my newsletter and get a series of free guided meditations. And I would really appreciate it if you could head over to the podcast app and leave a review of the Find Your Awesome podcast. Your reviews help other people learn about this podcast. Thank you so much. That's all I've got for you, friends. Go forth and be awesome.